When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Shakespeare versus Milton, the Kings of English Literature debate. This event took place on the 22nd of June 2014 at the Royal Geographical Society in London. Welcome to this Intelligence Squared debate, Shakespeare versus Milton, the Kings of English Literature. We know what Milton thought of Shakespeare. In his famous sonnet on Shakespeare, the author of Paradise Lost heaped praise upon the, bo- upon the bard. Those honored bones, he wrote, needed no monument other than the greatness of his work. But Milton is not here tonight. You are, and it's your votes that count. Who will triumph in our battle of Britain's literary titans? In one corner, we'll have William Shakespeare. What more needs be said? He is the hero and figurehead of English literature, our national desert island author. His first plays began to appear in 1594, from which time he produced roughly to a year until around 1611. By 1598, he was already being described as England's greatest writer of comedy and tragedy. Set him against John Milton, and you might think there's no contest, but I'm not so sure. This towering political poet was praised by Blake and Wordsworth. Milton, thou shouldst be living at this hour. England hath need of thee, the latter wrote. He was the greatest defender of personal personal liberty. His aria... We're going to have to try and help me again. Areopagitica. Areopagitica, from 1644, is often cited as one of the most compelling arguments on the freedom of the press. Each of these astonishing writers will have a valiant champion this evening, and I've learned to expect some surprises in my evenings with Intelligence Squared. As with all Intelligence Squared debates, you've been polled as you entered the hall and you'll have the chance to vote again at the end of the evening when you've heard the arguments. To make these arguments, we have two extremely distinguished advocates. For William Shakespeare, we have one of the world's leading scholars on the bard, James Shapiro. He's professor of English at Columbia University and author of the bestseller 1599, A Year in the Life of William Shakespeare. And for John Milton, 
we have perhaps the most distinguished Miltonist alive, Nigel Smith, professor of ancient and modern literature at Princeton University and author of a book entitled, aptly, Is Milton Better Than Shakespeare? (laughs) To illustrate their argument and help persuade you to vote for their chosen writer, our speakers have three wonderful actors at their disposal who will be bringing the works to life with their readings. Please welcome first Dame Harriet Walter. She is one of the greatest actresses of her generation. She has played many roles with the Royal Shakespeare Company, most recently Cleopatra, alongside Patrick Stewart, Beatrice in Much Ado About Nothing, and Lady Macbeth opposite Anthony Sher. She has published two books on acting, in particular on playing Lady Macbeth. We also have Samuel West. An award-winning actor and director, he has played the title roles in the Royal Shakespeare Company's Richard II and Hamlet. He's also a published author and has written essays on Shakespeare for the Cambridge University Press and on Shakespeare in Love for BBC Radio 3. And finally, Pippa Nixon. Pippa is a rising star who has played Titania and Hippolyta in A Midsummer Night's Dream, Ophelia in Hamlet, and Rosalind and As You Like It, all for the Royal Shakespeare Company. The Guardian has described her as on the threshold of stardom. As you can see, they've all performed quite a lot of Shakespeare. So Milton will be pastures new, to quote the great poet himself as well as giving the readings our actors will be joining the discussion later on. So um, I'm going to start this evening um, by asking each of our advocates in turn how they came to their passion for their chosen author. Jim, would you? Uh, Thank you, first of all, for the introductions. I want to thank Hannah for bringing me over and pitting me against the most formidable Milton scholar alive. Uh, Mostly, I feel I've won however you voted because I'm sharing a stage with three of the greatest actors in the world. And simply to be up here and to get to work with them a few hours earlier uh, made this a memorable occasion for me. And I thank you all for coming out on this beautiful, beautiful Sunday. Milton, Shakespeare, how I came. How I came to Shakespeare, actually, was through Milton. If you had had me up here 30 years ago, I wouldn't have been as well-dressed, and I would have said I would have preferred to have defended Milton. I owned a copy of Milton's work long before I ever purchased a copy of Shakespeare's work. I grew up in Brooklyn in a religious environment, went to religious school, and shared many of the values, I suppose, uh, even though not the same religion as Milton, the same kind of, how should I put it, traditional, timeless values, sheltered, patriarchal, transparently true for believers, self-celebratory, that made me feel very much at home in Milton's view of the world. And I immediately rushed to take Milton as an undergraduate and loved it. Uh, At 18 and 19, read Milton 
a lot. And I still love Milton. And uh, had I been asked to advocate for the other side, I would have done my best because I think that he is a visionary poet and a breathtaking one. But if asked to defend either Milton or Shakespeare, no question that it's Shakespeare. I never studied Shakespeare at university. I never took a college course on Shakespeare. Uh, I was bumming around Europe a lot in my late teens and found myself in London and started going to the theater. RSC, National Royal Court, hitchhiking up to the Edinburgh Festival. And I started seeing Shakespeare plays all the time. And I'd hold down some crummy job and come over to England to see 20 plays in 20 days, year after year. And it was like a drug. And it was also better than any drug I was taking at the time. (laughs) And uh, I've continued to uh, take that drug for many years. And uh, I'm very lucky to spend my life immersed in Shakespeare. So that's how I came to Shakespeare. And uh, kind of like, is it Demetrius or Lysander? One of those lovers in Midsummer stays drugged and in love. That's the way I've experienced Shakespeare. Very good, thank you. And Nigel, a little well, bit about your Miltonic beginnings. Um, I have, it's very interesting. I have a sort of converse experience. So I, I grew up in North London or on the edge of uh, London and South Hertfordshire, and you, you, you got a lot of Shakespeare at, at school then. And uh, so this would be in the 1970s. And I remember when I was 11, so that was in 1970, being taken to see a local school production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. And I was quite amazed by the acting, even though, of course, it was secondary school acting, so, in fact, it probably wasn't very good at all. Um, And I was amazed by the way in which the... Shakespeare's interest in imagination, in illusion... How, how, how love needs both to work, um, was realised in, in a performance. And then as I, went through, um, as I went through the rest of secondary school and then on to university, um, so it's very hard in this country to escape from the hold of Shakespeare. And indeed, if you live in the London area, to escape from the, the presence of old plays, of Renaissance theatre being performed in, in our theatres... Um, of which we're very proud in this country. So, um, although it wasn't... Um, well, I, I, I do remember seeing um, an amazing performance of, of Hamlet at the Roundhouse. Um, I remember seeing, being taken to Stratford to see Donald Sindon playing King Lear, and that was an amazing evening that I'll never, ever forget, and it made King Lear my favourite play. Um, so... How did I get to Milton? We had two books of Paradise Lost to learn for A-level, and actually I couldn't get on terms with it. Um, in fact, the whole class couldn't get on terms with it, and in the end, I think the teacher gave up, and we, we skipped it. You know, it was, it, was, it was more rewarding, it seemed, to do Thomas Hardy, Harold Pinter, and three Shakespeare plays. Um, but I went to university... I actually went to the University of Hull in the northeast of England, and the reason I did that was to read... Um, history as well as English because I couldn't decide which I wanted to do and you could do that there and I suppose it was learning 17th century history in the first year and also being taught Milton and then I realised, my god this guy's so ambitious 
the poetry is written and realised according to this fantastic plan where he's trying to outdo everyone who's ever written poetry before, not just in English, but in any language, as far as he could know it at the time. And it's, a, it's actually a whole approach to living. It's a, it's a philosophy. Um, and he has, these, he has these interesting values. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't like monarchs. Um, he's kind of against the grain. He's a rebel. That was interesting, too. So although it was far too late in the, ni- the late 1970s to be ex- experimenting with substances, um, certainly one, one could have um, strong opinions about um, public matters, political matters, as one, one certainly did up in Hull at the time. And, and Milton, along with William Blake, was a great um, poetic totem um, for such things. So um, my story is really that as I, I, I didn't really discover myself until that first term at university. And then I realised I was going to be a literature professor within about six weeks, really. It's all, I wanted, it's all I've ever wanted to do, and I'm, and I'm still doing it. It's a great privilege. And, and Milton has been the, the, the great guide because he, he aimed at so much, he achieved an awful lot of it, and he did it um, uh, against, with, with the odds stacked against him in a variety of ways, which we may come to talk about later on. But most of all, um, he is, uh, his vision, he is a visionary poet, and his vision is astonishing in ways that I think this evening might, I hope, surprise you. Thank you very much, Nigel. I think we will definitely come back to quite a few of those points. But now... Uh, We're going to get on with the meat of our evening, the two sections of advocacy. So we're going to begin uh, with Jim advocating for William Shakespeare. Thank you. Take it away. I get a half an hour, and I'm going to share that with the actors who will really make the case because they've made the case for me. I'm not here to argue that Shakespeare is better than Milton. I'm really here to argue why I value Shakespeare more than I value Milton, and I want to explain how I feel and why I feel that way. I should say that as soon as Hannah set this up, I asked that I go second. I've read Julius Caesar, and I know what happens when Brutus goes first. (laughs) But, and then I argued alphabetically. It didn't work. Uh, They asked that I speak first. I could stand up here and argue with Harold Bloom that Shakespeare invented the human. I don't believe that, and I'm not here to gush in those ways. I could argue that Shakespeare has contributed so much to our language, and his poetry is in many ways unrivaled. But neither of those things truly explain why I value Shakespeare as much as I do. One of the most important things for me about Shakespeare and about a life since my late teens steeped in Shakespeare is that Shakespeare is the great poet of relationships. I mean fathers and sons, fathers and daughters, sisters and sisters, brothers, servants and masters, every relationship you can imagine, Shakespeare penetratingly explores and relentlessly explores. And in the sonnets, just one or two relationships are penetratingly explored in 154 variations that have been unrivaled. But I had to choose a scene 
to begin this evening that captured for me the complexity of how Shakespeare explores relationships. And Milton is pretty good on relationships, but only for me up to a point. When I think of that great Miltonic line about Adam and Eve, and I don't want to get it wrong, he for God only, she for God in him, it serves as a kind of dividing line between what Shakespeare can offer and what Milton does offer. I made the lives of two of our actors very difficult by asking them to come in and do cold a scene from Much Ado About Nothing. And I'll introduce that scene just to bring you up to speed and explain a little bit about how this captures what I'm talking about, about rendering the complexities of relationships. Um, Why don't you stand up so that I can at least point to the two of you. Sam is Benedict, and Pippa is Beatrice. Something once happened between them, and they were almost a couple. Shakespeare never explores what that is, but we know that they have some bad history behind them. They've gone through about two hours now in a play, bantering with each other, perhaps the wittiest banter in all of Shakespeare between man and woman. And at this point in the play, they finally realize, despite everything, and perhaps because of everything, that they love each other. That alone would make for a great scene. But Shakespeare is creating here two scenes that are going on at once. One is a great love scene in which two characters, mature characters, tell each other that they love each other. The other is a radically different scene in which a woman asks a man to kill his best friend. Only Shakespeare gives you both (laughs) at the same time. And I challenge even fans of Jane Austen or Bronte, or Milton, to offer something like this. So with apologies to the actors for asking them to pick up in the middle of an extraordinary moment, I'll get out of the way. Lady Beatrice, have you wept all this while? Yea. And I will weep a while longer. I will not desire that. You have no reason. I do it freely. Surely I do believe your fair cousin is wrong. How much might the man deserve of me that would right her? Is there any way to show such friendship? A very even way. But no such friend. May a man do it? It is a man's office, but not yours. I do love nothing in the world so well as you. It's not that strange. As strange as a thing I know not. It were as possible for me to say, I love nothing so well as you. But believe me not, and yet I lie not. I confess nothing, and yet I deny nothing. I am sorry for my cousin. By my sword, Beatrice, thou lovest me. Do not swear and eat it. I will swear by it that you love me, and I will make him eat it that says I love not you. Will you not eat your word? With no sauce that can be devised to it. I protest I love thee. Why, then? God forgive me. What offence, sweet Beatrice? You have stayed me in a happy hour. I was about to protest I loved you. And 
do it with all thy heart. I love you with so much of my heart that none is left to protest. Come, bid me do anything for thee. Kill Claudio. Ha. Huh. <laughs> Not for the wide world. You kill me to deny it. Farewell. Tarry, sweet Beatrice. I am gone, though I am here. There is no love in you. Nay, I pray, let me go. Beatrice. In faith, I will go. We'll be friends first. You dare easier be friends with me than fight with mine enemy? Is Claudio thine enemy? Is he not approved in the height a villain that hath slandered, scorned, dishonoured my kinswoman? Oh, that I were a man, what bear her in hand until they come to take hands and then with public accusation, uncovered slander, unmitigated rancour, Oh, God, that I were a man! I would eat his heart in the marketplace! Hear me, Beatrice! Talk with a man out of, the win out of a window, or oh, a proper saying. Nay, but Beatrice... Sweet hero, she is wronged. She is slandered, she is undone. Beatrice! Princes and counties. Oh, surely a princely testimony. A goodly count, count convict. A sweet gallant, surely. Oh, that I were a man for his sake. Or that I had any friend that would be a man for my sake. But manhood is melted into courtesies. Valour into compliment, and men are only turned into tongue, and trim ones too. He is now as valiant as Hercules, that only tells a lie and swears it. I cannot be a man with wishing, therefore I will die a woman with grieving. Tarry, sweet Beatrice, by this hand I love thee. Use it for my love, some other way than swearing by it. Think you in your soul that the Count Claudio hath wronged Hera? Yea, as sure as I have a thought or a soul. Enough. I am engaged. I will challenge you. I kiss your hand. And so I leave you. By this hand, Claudio shall render me a dear account. As you hear of me, so think of me. Go, comfort your cousin. I must say she is dead. And so farewell. It's very distracting because I'm so caught up watching them. And if you had seen them two hours ago when they first worked through this, and all of a sudden, it is more than three-dimensional. It is a multi-dimensional moment. And we all got caught up in this. I, I almost feel like I could and should rest my case here. <laughs> I, I heard when Pippa said, kill Claudio, any number of you laugh. And it's no small thing. There are many kinds of laughter in Shakespeare. There are not many kinds of laughter in Milton. If, you know, if you are reading Paradise Regained or come to the end of Samson Agonistes and start laughing, go back to the beginning and read it properly. Now, what I'm really suggesting by that is, is not saying something unfair about Milton, but saying something extraordinary about 
Shakespeare. And it has to do with his ability to, as in this scene, be heartbreaking and light at the same moment. And I don't know, and this is a fairly early play, it's an Elizabethan, not a Jacobean play, how he achieves that. And I simply rely on extraordinary actors to make that point. I don't want to cede tonight that Milton is the poet of ideas and Shakespeare is the poet of or playwright of entertainment. I, I want to steer the battle towards Milton's turf. And no turf is more sacrosanct to fans of Milton, I would think, than Milton's ideas. And no idea is more important to Milton than the importance of killing a tyrant and of republicanism, things that Milton believed in fervently and expresses passionately, both in poetry and and in prose. So rather than give you more delightful moments of Shakespeare, which I still have in store for you, let me move to Shakespeare on republicanism. And it's going to be a two-part bit. First, I'm going to have Sam read what, to my mind, is a part of one of the great, great plays about republicanism. And he's going to read a soliloquy from early on in Julius Caesar, spoken by Brutus, one of the great republican heroes. And it is an early soliloquy for Shakespeare. It's not like those soliloquies in Richard III that are full of cheap laughs and partial self-revelation. But this is a soliloquy in which you get to see, or I should say, playgoers in 1599 got to see for the first time someone not only speaking his thoughts, but you get to witness the process of thought itself in the turns back and forth. In this speech, and come on up, in this speech, Brutus, who's a little sleepless, is wrestling with the question of should he kill his dear friend? It's kind of a little segue from the last side. But should he kill his dear friend, Caesar? And the only reason that would justify murdering Caesar is that Caesar would rule over men and change the political order in Rome and destroy the republic, which has been in place since his ancestor, Brutus, drove the Tarquins from Rome long before. So this, too, is a man torn who has to decide whether to act on his principles and on his Republican beliefs. It must be my his death. And for my part, I know no personal cause to spurn at him, but for the general. He would be crowned. How that might change his nature, there's the question. It is the bright day that brings forth the adder, and that craves wary walking. Crown him that. And then, I grant, we put a sting in him that it is will he may do danger with. The abuse of greatness is when it disjoins remorse from power. 
And to, to speak truth of Caesar, I have not known when his affection swayed more than his reason. But tis a common proof that lowliness is young ambition's ladder, whereto the climber upward turns his face. But when he once attains the utmost round, he then unto the ladder turns his back, looks in the clouds, scorning the base degrees by which he did ascend. So Caesar may, then lest he may, prevent. And since the quarrel will bear no colour for the thing he is, fashion it thus, that what he is augmented would run to these and these extremities and therefore think him as a serpent's egg which hatched would as his kind grow mischievous and kill him in the shell. Thank you. When I think of this speech, when I think of Brutus, I think one of the great qualities of Shakespearean characters, and those of you who have seen Sam play Hamlet know this well, is that they are characters who are capable of changing their minds. I always feel, and perhaps it's unfair, and Nigel will correct me on this, but the deck is stacked in Milton. You know how it's going to turn out. With Brutus, every time he comes to that speech, I'm not sure whether the play is going to take a left turn or a right turn. I should also say that one of the brilliant things about Shakespeare on republicanism is, I think, although increasingly my students don't, that Brutus is right, that his principles are correct. Whether he's right or not, he hasn't thought past that moment in which Caesar lays sprawl and bloody, having been assassinated. That republicanism might be right in principle, but in the world, it may not be effective unless you're a bit more Machiavellian than Brutus. I'm going to ask Pippa to come up now and read a poem that may be unfamiliar to most everyone in this room, and that is from Shakespeare's very early long poem, Lucrece, also known as The Rape of Lucrece. And the rape, who's read The Rape of Lucrece here, just so I know? This half of the room is quite strong, so is the back. This side is weaker. <laughs> it's an extraordinary poem. And it's a poem about a man, the husband of Lucrece, who brags about how hot his wife is and how chaste she is to his friends. And one of his friends is a man named Tarquin, who is part of the ruling elite, the kings of Rome. And he goes to Lucrece's house while her husband's away and rapes her. She does not give consent, and he threatens if she doesn't submit, to kill a servant and put the two of them, kill her as well, and put the two of them together and stain her name in perpetuity. He rapes her, he leaves, and she is left distraught with no choice but to take her own life after revealing 
to her husband and her father, and the Romans gathered around what has happened to her. This, too, is one of the great Republican works of writing in the English language. I'm going to ask Pippa to read the last three stanzas of poetry. She reads it so beautifully, it feels like it's a bit from a play, but trust me, it's rhymed verse. Pippa. Now, by the capital that we adore, and by this chaste blood so unjustly stained, by heaven's fair sun that breeds the fat earth's store, by all our country rights in Rome maintained, and by chaste Lucrece's soul that late complained her wrongs to us, and by this bloody knife, we will revenge the death of this true wife. This said, he struck his hand upon his breast and kissed the fatal knife to end his vow. And to his protestation urged the rest, who, wondering at him, did his words allow. Then jointly to the ground their knees they bow, and that deep vow which Brutus made before, he doth again repeat, and that they swore. When they had sworn to this advised doom, they did conclude to bear dead Lucrece thence, to show her bleeding body thorough Rome, and so to publish Tarquin's foul offence, which being done with speedy diligence, the Romans plausibly did give consent to Tarquin's everlasting banishment. It's a beautiful piece of poetry. It's among the most reprinted of Shakespeare's work in his lifetime. It spoke very powerfully to a culture that was wrestling with political questions. And in those three stanzas, you watch the great ancestor of Brutus, an older Roman Brutus, throw off his disguise, point to the body of Lucrece, and if I can summarize that action, offered to carry it through the streets of Rome to persuade his fellow citizens to throw off the tyrant's yoke and to re-establish, or in fact, to establish the Republic of Rome. Now, I taught that for 20 years and thought, that's a great ending, and that is a great Republican message. Sometime around 2003, 2004, a young woman in my class raised her hand and said, Wait a minute. Let me get this straight. Brutus is taking up the dead, raped woman's body and doing the same thing that effectively Tarquin is doing, resting her body to his own will, using it for his purposes, even as the rapist did for his. In some way, she said, it's even worse. Tarquin is at least driven by lust. Political power is an even more unseemly justification for what Brutus is doing with the dead body of Lucrece. And, and I was thrown because I had always understood this poem in one narrow way. And it reminded me not only that she was right and I was getting old and stuck in my ways of reading, but she reminded me that almost every play Shakespeare writes 
allows, especially in the end, for multiplicity of readings. We can decide whether Coriolanus is a play that celebrates republicanism or is the great exposure of the foolishness of republicanism. We can read Antony and Cleopatra as a pair of plays about a strumpet's fool and a triple-turned whore, or we could see them as transcendent figures. We could see Macbeth as a troubled hero or as a violent killer. Shakespeare doesn't tell us what to think or what to believe. Milton does. Not only that, but Shakespeare is a fundamentally collaborative writer. And that's going to bring me to the third out of the four acts of my brief, brief message here. What I mean by collaborative, his works were not only meant to be experienced in really where we're sitting today, in a kind of theater with a raised stage, but there was no director in Shakespeare's day. There were merely a group of actors who made sense of playwrights' words. And what I'd like to do in the next sequence is one of the great scenes. I've tried to stay away from the greatest hits just to make it more interesting for you. But uh, having actors of this caliber, it's impossible not to ask them to do great, great, great things. So what I'm going to ask is that Sam come up as Macbeth and Harriet come up as Lady Macbeth. Those of you who've had a chance to see her with Tony Sher uh, are going to relive that experience. Uh, those who haven't are going to get at least a glimpse of what you miss, which is extraordinary. And I should say that one of the great, great moments in my playgoing career was seeing Harriet play the Duchess of Malfi, which stays with me to this day. But today we're doing Shakespeare, not Webster. <laughs> and what I've asked the actors to do is something not easy to do, especially if they've done this play before. I want them to do it two ways so that you can begin to see the ways in which Shakespeare lets go of the reins of the authority of a writer and surrenders that to his actors. They'll do it once, I'll come up here again, and then they'll do it another time. Oh, now, what news? The king hath almost supped. Why have you left the chamber? Have they asked for me? No, you're not. He has. We will proceed no further in this business. He hath honoured me of late, and I have bought golden opinions from all sorts of people which would be worn now in their newest gloss, not cast aside so soon. <laughs> Was the hope drunk wherein you dressed yourself? <laughs> Hath it slept since and wakes it now to look so green and pale on what it did so freely? From this moment, thus I account thy love. Art thou afeard to be as strong in thine own act and valour as thou art in desire? Wouldst thou have that which thou accountst the jewel of life? And live a coward in thine own esteem, letting I dare not wait upon I would. Like the old cat of the adage. Pretty peace. <laughs> I dare do all that may become a man. Who dares do more is none. What beast was then that made you break this enterprise to me? When you durst do it, then you were a man. And to be more than what you were, you would be so much more the man. <sighs> nor time, nor place did then adhere. And yet you would make both... 
they have made themselves. And that their fitness now does unmake you. I have given suck and know how tender it is to love the babe that milks me. I would, while he was smiling in my face, have plucked my nipple from his boneless gums and dashed the brains out had I so sworn as you have done to this. If we should fail. We fail? But screw your courage to the sticking place and we'll not fail? That was amazing. One of the things that's amazing about it is writing in 1606, Shakespeare can imagine such a strong woman. Writing decades after that, Milton still could not imagine (laughs) such a strong woman. When Shakespeare wrote this scene, it's clear from the great soliloquy that, unfortunately, we didn't have time, and I cut, so I'm tilting this Harriet's way. Um, In much the same way that Brutus had talked him into killing his beloved Caesar, Macbeth had talked himself out of killing King Duncan, who is now in their house. He's lost his resolve, and later Macbeth realizes that she's going to have to spend the rest of her life out of power and authority, and her husband has let her down. What's so beautiful about the speech as written is that it doesn't only or always have to be played, as Harriet just played it, as a woman challenging her husband's manliness and, in a sense, being tougher than Macbeth. It is, as Harriet told me earlier, a strategic speech for Lady Macbeth, and she's quite right in saying that. There are many ways to persuade a spouse to do what you want. (laughs) And this, like it or not, is the best marriage in Shakespeare. (laughs) Those of you who are in a marriage or have witnessed a marriage will know that there are thousands of ways to get your partner to do what you want. I am now going to stand out of the way and show how Shakespeare allows for that multiplicity. And I turn it over to the actors once again. Oh, now, what news? Yes, almost soaked. Why have you left the chamber? Have they asked for me? No, you're not. He has. We will proceed no further in this business. He has honoured me of late. And I have bought golden opinions from all sorts of people which would be worn now in their newest gloss, not cast aside so soon. Was the hope drunk wherein you dressed yourself? Hath it slept since? And wakes it now to look so green and pale of what it did so freely? From henceforth thus I count thy love. Art thou feared to be the same in thine own act and valour as thou art in desire? 
wouldst have that which thou esteemst, the ornament of life, and live a coward in thine own esteem. Let him, I dare not wait upon my word. Like the poor cat in the adage. I dare do all that may become a man. Who dares do more is none. What beast was then that made you break this enterprise to me? When you durst do it, then you were a man. And to be more than what you were, you'd be so much more than a man. (laughs) No time, no place did then adhere, and yet you would make both. They've made themselves. And that their fitness now does unmake you. I've given suck, and no, how tender it is to love the babe that milks me. I would, while he was smiling in my face, have plucked my nipple from his boneless gums and dashed the brains I've had, I so sworn as you have done to me. If we should fail. (laughs) We fail. (laughs) But screw your courage to the sticking place and we'll not fail. We should have a vote within the vote. For, who liked the first one more of those two? <laughs> who liked the second one more? Interesting, interesting. Um, I get one last crack at persuading you of the greatness of Shakespeare. I'm letting my actors take a union-mandated break at this moment. <laughs> Um, actually, I'm not. Um, what I am doing is ending on an extraordinary note, and that is a scene from the end of Othello. And it's a scene between Amelia and Desdemona. And it is an extraordinarily intimate scene. It's a scene between two characters of a different social class who, as I've asked them to do it, are meeting over drinks at a pub. It could be yesterday. It could be tomorrow. It could be 400 years ago. These kinds of conversations are, in that way, as timeless as any in Shakespeare. What I love, love, love about this scene is that hovering in the background is the fact that both women know that they are in troubled marriages. Both may even have an inkling that before the day is out, each will be killed by her husband. In their meeting at this point, before the evening, they're sharing a moment. Shakespeare didn't have it as an alcoholic moment. There's apple juice in those glasses in case you're nervous. 
it's a scene that captures why I value Shakespeare so greatly. A deep empathy with his characters, a capacity to convey great sympathy, even for, as Amelia will point out, a morally reprehensible position, which is something Milton can never bring himself to do. There's a hint of the tragic, but there's also a mix of the lightheartedness in this moment. In intimacy between two women, we find um, a mingling of innocence and worldliness and morality and friendship all mixed into one. And if there's one scene in Shakespeare that might convince you of his greatness, this is it. These men, these men. Dost thou, in conscience, think? Tell me, Amelia, that there be women to abuse their husbands in such gross kind? There be some such, no question. Wouldst thou do such a thing? For all the world? Why would not you? No! By this heavenly light. Nor I neither, by this heavenly light. <laughs> I might do as well in the dark. <laughs> Wouldst thou do such a deed in all the world? The world's a huge thing. It's a great price for a small wise. In truth, I, I think thou wouldst not. In troth, I think I should. And undo it when I had done. Mary, I would not do such a thing for a joint ring or for measures of lawn or for gowns, petticoats or caps nor any petty exhibition, but for the whole world? Why? Who would not make her husband a cuckold to make him a monarch? I should venture purgatory for it. Oh, beshrew me. If I would do such a thing for the whole world... What? Tis but a wrong in the world, and having the world for your labour, tis a wrong in your own world, and you might quickly make it right. I do not think there is any such woman. Yes, a dozen. <laughs> and many to the vantage, as would store the world they played for. But I do think it is their husband's fault if wives do fail. Say that they slack their duties and pour our treasures into foreign laps or else break out in peevish jealousies, throwing restraint upon us. Or say they strike us. Mm. <laughs> or scant our former having in despite. Why, we have galls. And though we have some grace, yet have we some revenge. <coughs> Let husbands know their wives have palates both for sweet and sour. And as husbands have, what is it that they do when they change us for others? Is it sport? I think it is. Doth affection breed it? I think it doth. Is it frailty that thus errs? It is so, too. 
and have not we affections, desires for sport and frailty as men have? Then let them use us well, else let them know the ills we do, their ills instruct us so. Good night, good night. God, may such uses send, not to pick bad from bad, but by bad mend. I rest my case. Thank you. Well, that's only half our treats in store. Now I'm going to turn over to Nigel to persuade us over to John Milton. I think you must think after that I'm either very stupid or very brave, um, foolishly brave. Um, I'm not even going to bother with Milton's republicanism because that's not where his greatest poetry is, so wrong move, Jim. Um, And um, Milton tells us what to believe? I don't think so. I don't think so. And I'll show you why. And the actors, I hope, will help me to show you why. Um, okay, so I know I'm the underdog, um, in, a, in a big way. Uh, who's, who's actually read Milton? Right. Not bad. That's pretty good, actually. Who has read all of Paradise Lost? Excellent. But as you see, who has read some of Paradise Lost? Right. Okay. And who has read no Milton? Mm, yeah. Who has read no Shakespeare or seen no Shakespeare? Okay, that's, so you see, you see that's where we are. In, in about 1900, if I'd asked the same question, I would have thought everyone in the room would have um, put up their hands for having read probably all of Paradise Lost. And in, in, by the end of the 19th century, everyone who was a reader of English literature or somebody who frequented plays would have considered... Milton, as well as Shakespeare, is um, up there. And the, the, the two figures whom you could not ignore in the canon of English literature. There is the question of women writers, but we can't go there tonight. That's for another occasion. Um, so the first thing, of course, um, that we're dealing with, and this is a kind of word of warning, um, I, I'm only going to talk about Paradise Lost. Milton wrote... Um, three dramatic works, two dramatic entertainments and one play. The play is called Samson Agonistes. He says explicitly in the preface that it was never meant to be performed. (laughs) So what you've got to remember is that you're going to hear some pieces of Paradise Lost read to you and there'll be a little bit of acting out insofar as we can. But what you must remember is it wasn't meant to be a play. It's an epic poem and, and is a narration in which characters speak. So bear that in mind. So 
In truth, of course, Milton and Shakespeare have entirely different purposes in what they're about. And to compare them is indeed to compare apples and oranges. So since some people had put their hands up when I said who has not read Milton, one of my goals tonight is really to just expose Milton a bit more and try and help him get back to where he was. Um, I've, got, I've got, in general, three, three points to make. Um, first of all, um, Milton, in Paradise Lost in particular, um, is pushing the limits. He's pushing the limits of what English poetry can do, but he's also pushing the limits of what we as readers can take. He takes us to heaven and to hell. These are, technically speaking, beyond living human experience. If we can get back some of the dead, that would be great. We could have some testimony, but that is not known to happen. Um, well, except, you know, only in imaginative literature, ghosts. Um, Milton has one of his um, fallen angels say in book two of Paradise Lost in the, the, the Parliament of Hell when the, 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 fallen angels, as the fallen angels are discussing what to do next, he has one of them actually imagine the destruction of God. Um, so um, he has Moloch say, right, what we should do is we should go straight back up out of hell we're only just fallen, we should go straight back and we should make war on God again and we should overwhelm him with the black fire that we've got down here. That's an extraordinary mind experiment and of course in the 17th century that's nearly unimaginable. Not very many people could think outside of the concept of um, a creator and indeed a a beneficently minded creator. Um, And in this respect, as is probably well known, even if you haven't read Milton, Milton's greatest character, and Shakespeare doesn't do this, this is my my cheap shot, as it were, Um, Milton makes of the devil a character seen from the inside. We are put, as readers, in sympathy with the devil, Um, And we understand why um, he has chosen to rebel against God. Milton's intention is to explore human qualities like jealousy, spite, disdain, contempt, and to make them explainable to his readers. Um, It was the greatest of Milton's moves when he wrote Paradise Lost, Um, to project the source of all evil, as Milton understood it, and as many people still do, sympathetically and heroically, as well as with enormous fear for what Satan has done to the human race. Because everything in our world that is bad, including disease, bad temper, ageing, sickness, and finally death, that is because Satan caused the fall of man. He successfully tempted Adam and Eve. That's how, that's the story 
That's, that's what the Bible teaches, and that's how Milton um, expanded the Bible in his great poem. Um, there's, a, there's no doubt that there's an intellectual strenuousness at the heart of Milton, but it's my purpose tonight to show you that it's not beyond anyone to understand what Milton is up to. Uh, so um, a few weeks ago, I had to go and see um, a doctor, or since um, I live in America, one of my doctors. <laughs> and um, he, he said, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm, going to, I'm going to England, too. I'm going to London, and I'm going to be in this debate about whether Milton is better than Shakespeare. And he said, oh, yeah, I took a, I took a Shakespeare class at college, but um, I, I was scared of Milton. He's too smart for me. <laughs> no, no. He's... he's uh, as well as a great admirer of Shakespeare, Milton is also perfectly understandable. And one of the ways in which um, he's very understandable um, is in the territory of my, my second point. Um, he imagines what we as human beings were before we were fallen. In other words... He imagines all of the negative things that we live with that are traditionally defined as some kind of sin, one way or another. He erases that and gives us Adam and Eve before the fall. And what most people don't know is they're really sexy. (laughs) Um, By... um, By removing sinfulness by being able to imagine a world of innocence, for that's how Adam and Eve were created before the fall, Um, he has this amazing exploration of what it might have been like, what it was like before the fall, and what, if only we could get back there, it could be like. And it's, it's pretty amazing. I think this is part of the real greatness of Milton, not only to get inside with sympathy the head of the source of all evil, but to go to the other side and to give us um, characters that, technically speaking, we shouldn't really be able to imagine, not only angels, but um, human beings before they were fallen, in their perfect state. And in the 17th century, the great, um, the great hope was that somebody might figure out a way of getting back to that unfallen state. Um, so um, one of the things I'm going to concentrate on is um, uh, the scenes in the poem where um, Adam and Eve interact um, before they are fallen. Um, it, it is my contention that, that what Paradise Lost is about is love. L-U-R-V-E. Um, that is what Milton is trying to teach It is a poem that offers it to us in great variety and in a connected process of thought across many uh, thousands of lines of verse. And the verse itself, my final general point, um, well, Milton certainly learned from Shakespeare in the way he used unrhymed um, iambic pentameter, five metrical feet in a line, Um, not rhymed at the end, what had become, thanks to 
the work of Shakespeare and his contemporaries by the time Milton was writing, a generation later, um, the, the obvious way to write English literary poetry. Um, and indeed, Milton had um, originally designed... He'd begun to think about Paradise Lost as a play. And it would have been called Adam Unparadised. Um, and at some point, whilst he was being um, uh, a pamphleteer, mostly on behalf of the Parliament in its struggle with King Charles I, um, he changed his mind and decided it would have to be an epic poem. But it would be an epic poem that exceeded all previous epic enterprises, including the Bible, if you want to look at it as an epic, a, a piece of literature that tells the founding of a people and that encompasses every other kind of genre within itself. Um, and here's what Philip Pullman, the, shall we say, the adolescence novel, but, uh, novelist, but everyone reads him, Philip Pullman, so influenced by Milton, who has not read Philip Pullman? Okay, well, and who has? Yes, yes, right, okay. So he says, in, and he's most famous for his Dark Materials trilogy, which, um, you know, his Dark Materials is, is, a, is three words from um, book two of Paradise Lost. Um, Philip Pullman says in his own um, edition of Paradise Lost, in the preface, this, no one, not even Shakespeare, surpasses Milton in his command of the sound, the music, the weight and taste and texture of English words. Well, um, I will try and give you a chance to see whether you agree with that statement or not, and at least to see, to see why some people um, made, uh, why somebody was led to make the statement in the first place. I think we must move to the first passage. Um, uh, we're, we're, we're at the beginning of book four. The poem begins in book one. Um, those, for those of you who don't know it, Satan um, has Satan and Beelzebub um, are. Uh, we, we encounter them. They've been thrown out of hell, and they're picking themselves up off the burning lake in hell. Um, they wonder what to do. There's a big. Um, uh, debate in, in hell, and it's decided that um, they've heard about this new world that God has created to make up for the loss of the fallen angels, and uh, Satan will be sent to um, do damage to it. Um, so, book four opens with Satan having just arrived at the perimeter of Eden, cursing the sun for reminding him of his former glory. Milton's Satan, evil as he is, is also full of remorse and knows exactly why he has fallen. When he's busy rebelling, as we'll see a little bit later in the poem, he's a profoundly amnesic revolutionary. He, he cannot remember what he, what he owes. Um, but he does here, um, and that only makes his torment the worse. And being only recently fallen um, only increases his, his torture. So what you're going to hear in this passage is quite a lot about the the theology that interests Milton, which is, which is that we must... We're in a position, all of us, angels and humans, in, um, in saying thank you to God for creating us, and that's part of the love that we owe him. Um, however, we f- howsoever we feel it is, it is burdensome. And the, the second thing 
is Satan becomes aware in this passage that um, you actually can't escape what you become. And this is where Milton's interest in ideas begins to work. Um, He doesn't realise this at the end of the passage, but by the end he does, and he says, myself am hell. Oh, oh, I was going to say, oh my God. He wouldn't say that. He says, I have become exactly where I was thrown to, and um, my predicament is therefore utterly lost. O thou that with surpassing glory crowned lookst from thy sole dominion like the god of this new world, at whose sight all the stars hide their diminished heads, to thee I call, but with no friendly voice, and add thy name, O sun, to tell thee how I hate thy beams that bring to my remembrance from what state I fell. How glorious once above thy sphere, till pride and worse ambition threw me down. Warring in heaven against heaven's matchless king, ah, wherefore? He deserved no such return from me, whom he created, what I was, in that bright eminence, and with his good upbraided none. Nor was his service hard. What could be less than to afford him praise, the easiest recompense, and pay him thanks? How due! Yet all this good proved ill in me, and wrought but malice. Lifted up so high, I stained subjection, and thought one step higher would set me highest, and in a moment quit the debt immense of endless gratitude, so burdensome, still paying, still to owe, forgetful what from him I still received, and understood not that a grateful mind, by owing, owes not but still pays, at once indebted and discharged. What burden then? Oh, had his powerful destiny ordained me some inferior angel, I had stood then happy. No unbounded hope had raised ambition, yet why not? Some other power as great might have aspired, and me, though mean, drawn to his part. But other powers as great fell not, but stand unshaken from within or from without, to all temptations armed. Hadst thou the same free will and power to stand? Thou hadst. Whom hast thou then, or what, to accuse? But heaven's free love dealt equally to all. Be then his love accursed, since love or hate to me alike it deals eternal woe. Nay, cursed be thou, since against his thy will chose freely what is now, what it now so justly rues me miserable. 
Which way shall I fly? Infinite wrath and infinite despair. Which way I fly is hell. Myself am hell. And in the lowest deep, a lower deep, still threatening to devour me, opens wide, to which the hell I suffer now seems a heaven. Thank you. I, you know what? I, I'm, that was wonderful. Um, it, it's actually very rare to hear Milton read by actors. Um, I'm going to make it my business to contact the, the Royal Shakespeare Company and the National Theatre and get them to get somebody to dramatise Paradise Lost. Um, it has to happen. So, um, not, not so long afterwards, in the same book, in book four... Um, and Milton is, is getting his reader used to how amazing the Garden of Eden is as a creation. He, he gives us the, the, the plants, basic, basically the, the flora and then the, the fauna. Um, and finally, Adam and Eve in all of their glory. And it's a stunning account, um, which we, of course, don't have time to do in great detail but along the way, in a very, at a very significant point, um, we hear from Eve, and she describes how she first came to consciousness, how she knew herself as a being, and then how she encountered Adam. And what, what she does, what happens is that she, she sees her reflection in a, in, a, in a clear pool of water in the Garden of Eden. And... Um, she is amazed and profoundly attracted by the reflection of herself, fascinated by it. The reflection is, in fact, she thinks it's another person, another being, and is drawn to it. Um, and actually, it's quite funny. So Milton is funny. <laughs> Milton is full of humour, actually. People think he's a, he's a, he's a dry Puritan. Um, he's not. It's, it's full of humour. Um, the, the, the other great example of, is, is actually at the point of the temptation and Satan has been you know, slithering around in front of Eve and then he, he rears himself up and, and, and says, Hi, Eve. And she says, What? A talking snake? You know, the, you know it defies her own um, expectations entirely and it is funny, as, it, as it, of course it would surprise us. Um, so, I hope. Um, so, so Eve has to be Eve, as it were, has an unregulated desire, and she needs to be led to um, to Adam, and she needs she needs to be helped by a voice. Now, um, this voice, what this voice is, um, is has been a subject of debate among Milton scholars, but we have decided here that it is the voice of God tonight. So you're going to hear the voice of God. Um, and um, what happens at the end is that Satan has been watching all of this um, stage left, so to speak, recessed 
and, and it really winds up his jealousy. And of course, it is a sexual jealousy because what he sees is our first parents making love in the many ways that they do. And he can't have any of it. And the friendship, which is what we will learn later in the poem, the friendship, the high friendship that is how the angels experience love, that, of course, has gone with the rebellion of the angels and those that fell. They can only hate and despise each other all, of, uh, all the more. So the first love, as we see it in all of its perfection and glory, is countered by this fierce opposite. That day I oft remember when from sleep I first awaked and found myself reposed under a shade on flowers, much wondering where and what I was, whence thither brought and how. Not distant far from thence, a murmuring sound of waters issued from a cave and spread into a liquid plain, then stood unmoved pure as the expanse of heaven. I thither went with unexperienced thought and laid me down on the green bank to look into the clear, smooth lake that to me seemed another sky. As I bent down to look, just opposite, a shape within the watery gleam appeared, bending to look on me. I started back, It started back, but pleased I soon returned. Pleased it returned as soon with answering looks of sympathy and love. There I had fixed mine eyes till now, and pined with vain desire, had not a voice thus warned me. What thou seest, what there thou seest, fair creature, is thyself. With thee it came and goes, but follow me, and I will bring thee where no shadow stays thy coming and thy soft embraces. He whose image thou art, him thou shalt enjoy, inseparably thine. To him shalt bear multitudes like thyself, and thence be called mother of human race. What could I do but follow straight, invisibly thus led? Till I espied thee. Fair indeed. <laughs> and tall. <laughs> under a platin. Yet, methought, less fair, less winning soft, less amiably mild than that smooth, watery image. (laughs) Back I turned, thou following cried aloud. Return, fair Eve. Whom fliest thou? Whom thou fliest? Of him thou art, his flesh, his bone. To give thee being I lent out of my side to thee, nearest my heart, substantial life. To have thee by my side. 
Henceforth, an individual solace dear, part of my soul, I seek thee, and thee claim my other half. With that, thy gentle hand seized mine. I yielded. And from that time, see how beauty is excelled by manly grace and wisdom, which alone is truly fair. So spake our general mother, and with eyes of conjugal attraction, unreproved and meek surrender, half embracing, leaned on our first father. Half her swelling breast, naked, met his under the flowing gold of her loose tresses hid. He, in delight, both of her beauty and submissive charms, smiled with superior love as Jupiter on Juno smiles when he imprains the clouds that shed May flowers and pressed her matron lip with kisses pure. Aside, the devil turned for envy, yet with jealous leer malign, eyed them askance, and to himself thus plained. Sight, hateful, sight, tormenting, Thus these two, imparadised in one another's arms, the happier Eden shall enjoy their fill of bliss on bliss. While I to hell am thrust, where neither joy nor love but fierce desire, among our other torments not the least, still unfulfilled with pain of longing pines, Yet let me not forget what I have gained from their own mouths. All is not theirs, it seems. One fatal tree. There stands, of knowledge called, forbidden them to taste. Knowledge forbidden. Suspicious, reasonless, why should their Lord envy them that? Can it be sin to know? Can it be death? And do they only stand by ignorance, the proof of their obedience and their faith? Oh, fair fountain laid whereon to build their ruin. Hence I shall excite their minds with more desire to know and to reject envious commands invented with design to keep them low, whom knowledge might exalt equal with gods. Aspiring to be such, they taste and die. What likelier can ensue? I, I love the way in which um, Dame Harriet read the last line there, they taste and die. And that, of course, is entirely Satan's intention. He wants to do them and us in. Um, later on, after the, after the fall, um, his minions um, uh, sin, his daughter, and death, the incestuous son of their union, the union of Satan and sin, um, 
he encourages them to leave hell and go to the earth. And he says, um, find the humans and kill them. And it's totally terrifying. And you, you, you understand um, malignity in a very pure form. And I think that's, um, I suppose, that is one of Milton's great um, aims, is to reduce um, key qualities and concepts to something that, um, uh, things that can be understood with unmistakable and terrifying clarity. So, um, some more love, I think, after that. Um, So much later in book eight, um, after the archangel Raphael, who's sent by God basically to teach Adam and Eve about things, he describes Satan's rebellion and the war in heaven and the creation of the world. These these, uh, episodes occupy the central part of the poem. Um, And they culminate in an extraordinary episode where um, Adam is given the responsibility of describing his own conversation with God. So, uh, uh, you know, in, in the Bible, only Moses really gets to meet God and he only sees his hind parts, right? Um, so, this, so this is Milton's dare. He has a creation, he has a conversation between, between the first man and God. And the result of it um, is the creation of Eve. Uh, what they talk about is um, the debt that, the, or the reality that God lives with, and, and uh, the, in a sense, the debt He pays, which is that He is totally alone as the supreme being, and He can enjoy no company with anyone. And how would Adam like that? And Adam thinks about that and says, "Well, actually, that's quite terrifying." And God says, "It's all right. I was only joking. More humour. <laughs> only joking." Only joking, Adam. It's all right. I have specifically designed you so that you, are, you have a need for a partner. And I'm going to give you one. And then um, Adam describes how Eve is created, as you'll hear shortly. Why is it Adam and not Raphael who gets to describe it? Well, the answer is that um, Raphael was sent off by God for this particular part of um, uh, the creation... Um, to, to go to the gates of hell and make sure no one got out to see this very important part of the creation. Um, and Raphael is n- not an... Int- as we learn, if you're, a, if you're an attentive reader, you realise that Raphael is actually not a particular... You know, he's not always reliable in what he tells you. But Adam, he tells it like it was. He ended, or I heard no more, for now my earthly by his heavenly overpowered, which it had long stood under, strained to the height in that celestial colloquy sublime, as with an object that excels the sense, dazzled and spent, sunk down, and sought repair of sleep, which instantly fell on me, called by nature as in aid, and closed mine eyes." Mine eyes he closed, but open left the cell of fancy, my internal sight, by which, 
Abstract as in a trance, methought I saw, though sleeping, where I lay, and saw the shape still glorious before whom awake I stood, who, stooping, opened my left side and took from thence a rib with cordial spirits warm and lifeblood streaming fresh. Wide was the wound, but suddenly with flesh filled up and healed. The rib he formed and fashioned with his hands. Under his forming hands, a creature grew, man-like, but different sex. So lovely fair that what seemed fair in all the world seemed now mean, or in her summed up, in her contained, and in her looks, which from that time infused sweetness into my heart, unfelt before, and into all things from her air inspired the spirit of love and amorous delight. She disappeared and left me dark. I waked to find her, or forever to deplore her loss, and all pleasures all abjure. When, out of hope, beheld her, not far off, such as I saw her in my dream, adorned with what all earth or heaven could bestow to make her amiable. On she came, led by her heavenly maker, though unseen, and guided by his voice, nor uninformed of nuptial sanctity and marriage rites. Grace was in all her steps, heaven in her eye, in every gesture, dignity and love. You see, it's all about love. And not just the love between Adam and Eve and how it wonderfully arises in their unfallen state. But also, I think most interestingly in that passage, Milton is on to the love that exists between the creator in his creating act and the object that he fashioned. There seems to be a huge bond of love and affection there. And by bringing the two together in that passage and voiced by Adam, the poetry just exudes love. Um, Well, now, to finish, um, we're going to the temptation, or rather, just before the temptation and the fall of man. Um, We're going to a scene where Adam and Eve debate the pros and cons of separating, so it's called the separation scene, of separating in order to do the gardening more efficiently. Why they talk about this, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, Eve is something of a control freak, it turns out. And, and Adam, Adam says, um, uh, chill, um, so to speak. It's okay, um, yes, I know the grass needs cutting, but... Um, you know, there will be children, um, and, uh, you know, they'll, they'll help us keep this place in order. Just be patient. Um, there, there's also a, uh, there's a, there's a, an understanding that there, there are no children in, in, um, in Milton's Eden, as it were. That's, that's not true. They talk about the, the possibility of progenerating quite a lot. 
Um, so they, and they, they, they know that if they separate, um, this might leave them each more vulnerable to temptation, to the, the presence of Satan. And they have been warned by now that there is trouble around. Adam at first insists on being faithful to God, and so nothing is to be left to chance, so they're stronger if they stay together. But Eve reasons that they should each be capable of resisting temptation individually. So, oh yes, there's a line that, Jane, uh, that, that Jim quite rightly quoted, he, he for God only, she for God in him. But throughout Milton's portrayal of Eve, she is a phenomenal intellect. He respects her enormously. And he gives us their strengths and their vulnerabilities each. Um, so, um, the grounds of their difference, I'm just going to spell this out just so that we're all on the same page, so to speak, before it's acted out. Um, Eve thinks that um, it's impossible to imagine that God would have left them at risk of temptation without some kind of guard, um, like an angel. There, there are angels flying around in Eden all the time, and they've just been with Raphael, who's been teaching them everything. So they're going to be protected. Um, and uh, she calls it exterior help. And, and Adam, um, as I've just said, is, thinks that they're better off uh, if they hold faith and stay together. The situation, as Adam understands it, is that um, the will cannot be um, forced. If you don't want to do something, nobody can force you to do it. Um, And your will um, is free, and it can be persuaded one way or the other by your reason. Um, And he puts it to Eve that reason might be sometimes misled. Um, and uh, she is very confident that that isn't the case. So he says to her, um, all right, um, go off, do that, but do it if you really think you can resist temptation, you can resist Satan, that you have the ability to make your reason hold your will up, erect, as the word goes Um, And in any case, if I compel you to stay here, I'm compromising your free will and alienating what we are to each other. I'm destroying our paradisal marriage or certainly degrading it. Um, And so she says she's happy to go under those terms. She understands what he's saying. And the attentive reader or listener will know that she makes one fatal mistake, and the fall begins. She says, well, you know, I think that I, I doubt whether Satan's going to pick on the, the weakest, the weaker of us, i.e. me, Eve. Uh-uh. Um, we already know from another scene where Satan has spoken that he's, he says, I am not going to try, I'm not going to take on Adam. He's too strong for me, and I'm already declining in my powers. So I'll have a go at Eve. So the moment she leaves Adam and goes is perhaps the moment of greatest tragedy 
And for the first time ever when I taught this about, I taught this to some undergraduates about six weeks ago, I actually wept at this point. I've never done that before in a lecture. Here we have it. And what is faith? Love, virtue, unassayed alone without exterior help sustained. Let us not then suspect our happy state, left so imperfect by the maker wise, as not secure to single or combined. Frail is our happiness, if this be so. And Eden were not Eden, thus exposed. To whom thus Adam fervently replied, O woman, best are all things as the will of God ordained them. His creating hand, nothing imperfect or deficient left of all that he created, much less man, or aught that might his happy state secure, secure from outward force. Within himself the danger lies, yet lies within his power. Against his will he can receive no harm, but God left free the will, for what obeys reason is free. And reason he made right, but bid her well beware, and still erect, lest by some fair-appearing good surprised she dictate false and misinform the will to do what God expressly hath forbid. Wouldst thou approve thy constancy, approve first thy obedience? The other, who can know, not seeing the attempted, who attest? But if thou think trial unsought may find us both securer than thus warned thou seemst, go, for thy stay not free absents thee more. Go in thy native innocence, rely on what thou hast of virtue, summon all, for God towards thee hath done his part, do thine. So spake the patriarch of mankind. But Eve persisted, yet submiss, though last replied, With thy permission, then. And thus forewarned, chiefly by what thy own last reasoning words touched only, that our trial, when least sought, may find us both, perhaps, far less prepared The willinger I go, (laughs) nor much expect a foe so proud, or first the weaker seek, so bent, the more shall shame him his repulse. Thus saying, from her husband's hand, her hand soft she withdrew, and like a wood nymph, light, oread or dryad, or of Delia's train, betook her to the groves. But Delia's self in gates surpassed and goddess-like deport, though not as she with bow and quiver armed, but with such gardening tools as art yet rude, guiltless of fire had formed, or angels brought. I think the, the pathos of that with the, you know, something like a, a rake or a hoe with, you know, the, the, 
little upright bits just crudely formed and not properly put together. And that being juxtaposed with um, the, the, the quiver full of arrows and the bow of the goddess. Delia is the goddess Diana, the goddess of hunting. It's, it's, so, um, it, it's so plangently painful. Um, and it's been brought to life so, so magnificently uh, by our splendid actors. So I have put before you um, the great argument, as it's sometimes called, of Milton's amazing poem. It's, it's, a, it's an argument that touches us all. There's no way that you can be as a human being without engaging with the things that Milton thinks about. And that's entirely his point. So my, um, my mentor in the University of Oxford, um, John Carey, the well-known critic and um, uh, reviewer, um, published his memoir recently. It's called The Unexpected Professor. Um, and he, he says in it that um, literature sets you free because it allows you to enter so many different imaginative spaces that are beyond uh, your normal everyday experience. And of course, he's right. And Carey is, of, um, first and foremost, a great Miltonist. And uh, it, that statement applies particularly well to Paradise Lost. Um, it explains in its doctrine of love exactly how, um, how we can be better. And it shows us how we can be at the very best in a poetry which um, I don't think anyone's yet beaten, even if it does something quite different to what Mr Shakespeare does. Thank you very much for listening to us. Well, that was altogether magnificent. I can announce at this point the results of the poll, you were all polled as you came in, as you know, uh, and the debate result at this stage of the game, we have for Mr. Shakespeare, 63%, for Mr. Milton, 13%, but that leaves 24% undecided, so there's quite a bit to play for. We do have a big possible swing, and that's always the crucial thing uh, in these debates. I suppose I'd like to uh, just start by asking each of our um, uh, panelists what they most disagreed with in their opponent's argument. James, can we start with you? Sure. Uh, do you want me to sit or, or stand? I think you can stay sitting. I, I thought Nigel made an extraordinary case for Milton and I think the actors made me regret that Milton, who grew up near Blackfriars Theatre and could have been in his 20s, a contemporary of Ford or other playwrights, decided not to go down this path. And he would have been, I think, a gifted dramatist. But the thing that sticks in my craw with Milton that is less visible when he is acted out by members who have played not for the Milton uh, 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 Company, but for the Royal Shakespeare Company, 
is that Milton is fundamentally anti-theatrical. What do I mean by this? I think of that great Milton drama, Samson Agonistes, and I, I think of the hero of that poem, Samson. And at the end of that extraordinary poem, Samson pushes down the pillars and brings down the house, so to speak. And there's a funny bit in there that Milton changes. He looked at scripture, and he, his Hebrew was good enough to know that the word to describe the space they were in was um, bayit, or in Hebrew, or house, or temple. But Milton retranslates that as theater. And the description, for those of you who are familiar with that scene, is a deeply anti-theatrical one. I guess my response to that passionate argument is to quote Nigel's own words, and he's written eloquently on the subject, own words against him. You heard that groan there. (laughs) Milton never forgave Shakespeare for schooling Charles I in the ways of tyranny. He speaks in his great prose work, Iconoclastes, of the closest companion of these, his solitudes, William Shakespeare, when referring to Charles I. And Nigel himself writes, Milton's favorite English dramatist, or at least his works, participate in the font of evil, in schooling Charles I in his tyrannical way. So I'll still insist that tyranny and republicanism were preoccupations for Milton, so much so that Shakespeare gets implicated as an accomplice. I couldn't vote for anybody who implicates Shakespeare in the font of evil. My God, I wasn't expecting that. You know, um, I don't um, often get um, tortured for saying things in my writing. Uh, that, that sentence is the one thing that's come back to haunt me in a, in a career that's now 30 years old. Um, and most people think I misread uh, Milton at that point. So I'm not sure you can, I'm not sure you can use that. Um, uh, but I, I also think that... I, so I have to disagree. Uh, I mean, I have, to, I have to respond to that but first, I'm going to say what, what, what I most found difficult about your argument, and that, that was that Milton isn't funny um, or isn't humorous. He's full of humor. It's everywhere, but it's, it's often a very refined kind of humor. Um, and, you know, it, it's not, it, is, it is not, as it were, slapstick, and that's, and that's because Milton, I think, is... <laughs> a very refined kind of thinker, but he, was, he knew about humour, and I think he enjoyed it. And the accounts we have of him as a, um, a dining companion, for instance, are that he was you know, extremely cultivated and um, full of stories, and he, 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 liked, um, he liked gentle humour. So, um, as it were, humour mixed with love, as I think we see it in, in the characters. Um, I think he... Uh, to come back to the matter of drama, I do think 
he, Milton scholars debate degrees of contrariety in Milton. That on the one hand he's this, but at the, you know he's also that. Um, and in fact, I think that the truth is he's deeply theatrical, deeply powered by Shakespeare and Christopher Marlowe and Ben Jonson, um, all of whom he explicitly praises um, in in various places. Um, and got into a position in that last play, Samson Agonistes, where he, he wanted to um, uh, object to the theatre of his day, which by then was the re- restored theatre, uh, which comes, the theatres are reopened um, with the return of the monarchy in 1660. And, of course, the, um, what you got was a, was a very different kind of stage to the one he knew. And I th- my view is that he's, he's getting at the, the, the morally licentious stage of the 1660s and the 1670s. So um, I, th- uh, I, I don't think that... I, I, I think he's divided on, on theatricality, and that gives even more energy to his work. And if you, I mean, you probably won't know this, but um, a major figure in English letters, John Dryden, did actually produce a, a dramatic version of Paradise Lost called The State of Innocence, which played, I think, once. <laughs> Um, one thing I, you know, I, because I'm aware, um, certainly from this vote, uh, that Milton uh, is, shall we say, the underdog, I feel I must bring up the fact that not everyone has praised Shakespeare. Famously, I think Tolstoy was not a fan, despite reading Shakespeare in English and French and Russian, was never persuaded. Um, And there's a a wonderful line, uh, Samuel Johnson, again, not a small thinker, Shakespeare never had six lines together without a fault. Um, And Pepys went to see Midsummer Night's Dream and, rather surprisingly, said um, it was the most ridiculous play that he'd ever seen in his life. So these are are not um, uh, small criticisms. What's your... Answer. I can only quote Dr. Johnson on Paradise Lost. <laughs> None ever wished it longer. <laughs> I have to... What can you say? Look, the, the Samuel Johnson, um, uh, uh, who, who does... Uh, one way or another, say some of the most acute things um, about the English literature that had preceded them, um, is, is weirdly um, curmudgeonly about several texts. Um, he, do, he doesn't like Milton because Milton was a, was a king-hater, and you can't forgive him that, and that's, that's one of the energies that's behind the text. But... But he says it on the end of a, of a long and loving tradition of commentary on Paradise Lost in the 18th century, which really um, adores, adores the poem um, in, in, a, in a great variety of ways, um, begins to see how the no, uh, Paradise Lost, an epic poem, is directly continuous with the new kid on the street, the novel, which is just emerging uh, in the 18th century, in the, in the way that we know it today. Um, so in, I, I think you have, to, you have to regard Samuel Johnson's um, comments as, as sui generis. Um, Take them with a pinch of salt. Um, yes. 
Uh, we're going to open uh, to the floor in a moment. I suppose I would, before we do that, I would like to ask our actors, since we have such a wonderful crew here this evening, if they would like to say anything about having had the experience, of course, in their careers so of speaking a great deal of Shakespeare, as we said, and then tonight saying Milton aloud. What was that? What was that like? It's a great pleasure. It's a great mouth-filling exercise. Um, spikier than most Shakespeare. Um, and, and feels more like... This is going to sound really wanky. Feels more like jazz. It, it feels more like sort of playing an, an odd drum kit. The, the, the bits come to you from odd directions. I, I feel that there is one thing that Milton falls down on uh, that Jim covered very beautifully. And, in fact, Harriet and I tried to, tried to uh, express which is that we keep doing these plays because we don't know how to do them right because there isn't a right. I d it, it may be apocryphal that Coriolanus was banned by the Nazis for being communist and banned by the communist Chinese for being fascist. But it, it, it doesn't need to be apocryphal. It could easily have happened. Um, it, you can do the same play in both of those ways, as Jim said. And there isn't a Royal Milton Company, not just because he didn't write any plays, for the same reason that there isn't a Royal Johnson Company. Because... We know exactly what Johnson was like. <laughs> and, and, and we don't devote an entire company to doing his plays because he comes through all of them, as Milton does all through his poems. Shakespeare is hidden behind his work in a way that I find fascinating. And, and I, I, I want my poetry to be Republican. I'm a Republican. And I want my production of Richard II to be king-hating. But, but on the other hand, I realise that if it was, we probably wouldn't do it quite so often. <laughs> um, and that, as an actor, would be a shame. Um, it's the first time I've ever read Milton out loud tonight um, and even preparing at home it was quite hard to get into but once you get, got into it it was really fun and really beautiful um, and, I, and I loved it and I feel like I'm, a, I'm converted but um, with Shakespeare a little bit like what Sam said um, I've done Midsummer Night's Dream three times. <laughs> and I'm sure I will do that play a number of more times in my career. And Shakespeare, it does feel like with, with the plays and the characters, you can come back to them time and time again throughout your life, playing the same character, and it will be a completely different experience because you're at a different experience in your life. Um, somehow, the language and the characters stretch to fit anybody. Um, I don't know whether I can say that for Milton because that's not been my... It, it, my experience, but um, I would say that I, I am now intrigued to read more of Milton from tonight. Mm. But for me, Shakespeare is my is my love. It is unfair to compare. <laughs> it is um, I, I was I'm sort of vaguely against the whole idea of deciding who's best anyway. Just but I know it's it's good fun, but. Um, <laughs> I think one of the things, you know, obviously Shakespeare's a dramatist and therefore, in some way, he makes um, humans into important, huge things. And Milton seems to be making important, huge things have a human personification. Um, and there's something about... Obviously, if you're dramatising and acting out things, it's easier to play real people than Adam and even God. Um, and it's also, it's quite hard work syntactically um, to do 
um, Milton, you do bring all your focus on trying to make it make sense, whereas somehow with Shakespeare, it can be very high poetry and very dense, but in the same play, you can have some very naturalistic um, demotic speech, and I like the rubbing up of the one against the other in Shakespeare. Thank you so much. I think what we're going to do now um, is we will be taking some questions, but I'm going to ask you to cast your votes. We have boxes that are going to come round. You each have one of these, I think. It says Shakespeare and Milton. And you should put your card in the box, depending on who you choose. If you are undecided, keep your card whole and put it in the box like that. Let's do this quietly, as quietly as possible. And I think we also have a microphone to take some questions. Who would like to ask a question? We're right here in the front. I'm just curious why no one has really addressed the problem um, of the fact that wonderful as the plays of Shakespeare are, and believe me, I love them, the fact that there is no head to crown, uh, that how much of Shakespeare's work is the result of collaboration, is the result of what springs up in the theatre and what has changed over time and in various editions, whereas with Milton, and I do wonder why this wasn't made more of, this is um, a totalising work, uh, a wonderful overreaching... I think he does overreach himself, um, but the courage with which he faces the problems of um, can Eve really have been created totally innocent if she decided to go and test herself? And um, the problem of foreknowledge and so on. You know, he, he tries to totalise everything and to come up with a grand theory. We have the contents of his head and therefore we can crown him. So we have that question relates to we have one sort of the one mind of Milton and the possibly collaborative. Let's take another um, right behind, and we can then address these. On the question of kingship, I think even Milton, especially Milton, would have said that Shakespeare should be the king, but for that, but for Milton, that wasn't a good thing. In the, the poem that you brought up at the beginning on Shakespeare is extremely ambivalent and on occasion hostile towards Shakespeare. He even says, thou sepulchred in such pomp dost lie that kings for such a tomb would wish to die. And at that moment, I mean, pomp is a terribly insulting word for Milton and he uses it to describe Satan and all his pride and all his uh, bombast. And so in a sense, to be the king of English literature, as Milton may have rather snidely said Shakespeare was, is not a great prize. Um, so there's something, there's something ironic in the very word, if you ask me. So that's a backhanded compliment. Very much so. Saying. Well, let's talk about those two. So we have the kind of issue of single authorship versus how collaborative was. Well, I, I decided not to attack Shakespeare. I just thought, or, or go after any, any um, position on Shakespeare that, that is well known um, to quote the publications of my esteemed colleague here because because I thought it was ignoble and, and, and not, not, not gentlemanly. Um, so, 
Uh, so, fair in love and war. Uh, <laughs> yes. So, so, um, so that was the, the view I took. The, um, of course, the, uh, the collaboration argument is, is uh, um, intriguing and fascinating, but perhaps Jim wants to talk uh, about that. I can answer it in one of two ways. Uh, the first way is uh, we lock the doors and I keep you trapped here for, say, two hours. Uh, the other way is a 30-second response. Two, three months ago, I was uh, in Rikers, and those of you who uh, live in New York or have visited New York might know that it's the largest prison facility in New York City. And I was there with a production of Much Ado About Nothing for the inmates who had no exposure to theater or to Shakespeare. And before the production began, there was time for two questions, almost just like this. And I would say it was not as educated a crowd or as familiar with the works of either Shakespeare or Milton. And I was asked two questions. The first question spoke indirectly to collaboration, and that was, how many plays did Shakespeare write? And I thought of giving the long answer. They had more time on their hands than I did. Uh, <laughs> And I said, somewhere between 35 and 40. And I was asked one last question before the production began. Is Shakespeare still alive? <laughs> and I said no, but leaving the prison, I thought, certainly yes. Having, read, having heard a bit of Satan tonight and having read a bit of Macbeth, that there's a thing when you play a baddie in Shakespeare where you can be sympathetic. You can be, you know, we have Patrick Stewart playing a sympathetic child murderer in the West End on the same day that we fill our front pages of our tabloids with terrible things about child murder. It's a very odd um, uh, coexistence. But you you have to leap the tragedy train at some point as an audience as it careers towards the, the, the bloody buffers. You have to lose sympathy for him, however much he carries you along, because he's going to be damned. That doesn't happen with Satan, because he's not human. What's the worst thing that can happen to him? It's already happened. And so Milton, it struck me tonight, has done a sort of extraordinarily, extraordinary high jump imaginatively uh, and, and morally, he's, he's given you this person who, you know, has all the best tunes and given you sympathy for the devil, um, which is also a great tune. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then he sort of made it impossible for you to withdraw your sympathy from him because he's so clearly having a worse time than you are. <laughs> and, and I'm not sure Shakespeare ever quite does that. Um, and I just wanted to say that I think it's... Um, it's, it gives you quite a sort of vertigo, morally. And that's yes. extraordinary. Mm. Yes. We have some... Right there at the back. Hello. Um, a few years ago, when um, Paradise Lost was broadcast on the radio, Philip Pullman read it, and I think he quoted some chap who, kind of, after reading it, slapped his side and said, well, um, Satan sounds a damn fine chap, and he's, um, I certainly hope he succeeds. Um, sounds like Milton slightly misfired in his goals, and I wonder if somebody could comment. 
slightly misfired on... Did you, did you hear well, that? Well, basically, if Milton was trying to justify God's way to man, then he hasn't exactly managed. Oh, I see that he hasn't uh, actually managed well, justifying God's way. Well, let's take one more yeah, question, and then yeah, we'll wrap okay. them up together. Um, down in front, here. Fred, this is rather an obvious question, but I'd love, love to hear Nigel addressing it. Is Milton misogynist? Okay. Mm. So let's take he's not justifying God's ways to man, and is he a misogynist? Okay, well, the second one is very easy to answer. Um, uh, in, uh, um, uh, the, well, the, the, strict, the strict hierarchy of man over woman in the, in the 17th century or the early modern household is well attested, um, and Milton, to some extent, has to play into that. But I, what I find fascinating is, is the respect given in, in the description of Eve, the powers that she has. Um, the, we couldn't get into this because it's a vast area that, that um, there's no opportunity to get into it on a, in a debate like tonight. But as, as you probably know, Milton defended divorce for incompatible partners um, more than 100 years before it was even encoded in law and was, of course, very difficult to achieve then. Um, and and what, he, what, he, what he does clearly say is that it is quite possible um, for a woman to be a whole lot smarter and absolutely smarter than her husband and she should be listened to and he says that so he's he's not a sexist and he's not a misogynist um, is that okay as an answer and and, and the whole the, the earlier very interesting can i yes yeah the, the very very interesting comment at the back about milton misfiring as it were and that, that somehow um we end up liking satan too much if i understood the the sense of the uh, comment correctly. That's, that's absolutely true, and it has produced um, a huge universe of debate about what the poem actually means. And there is a, there is a strong contingent of um, appreciators of Paradise Lost who think that Milton exposes God as a tyrant. It's God who provokes Satan and God should have treated him differently. There's no time to go into that, but that, that, is, that is one way um, of reading the poem. It's a powerful uh, um, tradition of, of that. So the, the, the po- part of the, the, the greatness of the poem, as it lives uh, through time with us to this moment, is that it, it profoundly divides its, its readers. Who else? There was at the back... I, well, I was one of the people who voted for Shakespeare when I came in. And part of the reason for that was because we're talking about kings of English literature. And my reason was that outside of England, Shakespeare is renowned. And people in other countries think about Shakespeare as a great king of English literature. What I don't know about Milton is how much he is read and revered outside of England and Britain, and I'd be really interested to hear about that, especially in those countries where um, the existence of God and evil and the devil and Satan is a much more realistic living to people within England where we're much more agnostic and otherwise. Good question. Let's take one more before we move on. Is there anyone? One here? One down here? Obviously, Shakespeare is among many, many other things, the, the infinitely the best poet of creator of relationships. 
I wonder if it's possible to think of Milton as uh, he certainly does create some great relationships as our actors showed, but in a sense more, more importantly, um, the poet of internal personal experience, what it's like to lose your best friend with whom you were learning to write poetry and listen else, what it's like to find that you are the enormous age of 23 and you still haven't become a great poet, uh, what it's like to go through the Civil War, what it's like to go blind when you want above all to be a writer. So in the sonnets, in this personal experience. Yes, personal experience. And yeah. also, of course, in Samson Agonistes, he shows dramatically, if not theatrically, what it's like to lose your sight. Oh, dark, dark, dark amid the place of noon. Irrecoverably well, dark. Fine. And I think Can perhaps, I, I just wanted to yeah. add, perhaps that's why the great romantics loved and revered him so much, because their own feelings were there. Can I start and then let Nigel yes, have the last word? One of the sad things, really, um, for all of us who love Milton as a great poet of interiority and of realms of experience that no one else has wrestled with as powerfully, is that the knowledge that one needs to not only begin reading Milton, but to stay with Milton is significant. And uh, it's a terrible analogy, but it's easier to start learning the clarinet than it is the oboe. And at a certain point, jazz was mentioned earlier, you know, to be able to do things on a jazz clarinet is an extraordinary gift. There are obstacles to reading Milton that are only going to increase as time unfolds, which is a terrible thing. And Levis's claim uh, uh, close to a century ago that you know the nails in the coffin for Milton was premature, but I worry, and I know Nigel must share that worry, uh, that it's more and more difficult to persuade English departments and larger uh, 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 cultural uh, uh, movements to, to, to grapple with Milton. Half the students in the world are now exposed to Shakespeare. I'm not saying that's better or worse, but there is something to the accessibility of Shakespeare and to the fact that he has made his home in a theater and in an increasingly less devout world. Milton, in certain ways, matters less, and theaters have become our shared sacred space, and I don't know how to get around that. And briefly, Nigel. Um, well, um, I think that the, the, the I think Shakespeare is in many ways just as demanding as as Milton, actually. And the, um, it may seem now that um, uh, that yes, people don't read Milton. He doesn't get he's beginning not to be taught at all. But soon Shakespeare might not be taught as much. This is a significant um, concern for educators in the United States. Um, Right now, in in the states and in Britain, uh, school school pupils encounter Shakespeare, so you know they'll enrol in a Shakespeare class at university, and they they might not enrol in in Milton in the numbers that they used to do. But I think I think actually the threat is common. Shakespeare does indeed have the great advantage of of the theatre, and that's why he is so culturally 
predominant at the moment. The in, internationally, probably the biggest author, I don't know if, in fact, technically speaking, he's bigger internationally than either Shakespeare or Milton is John Bunyan because of the way in which the Pilgrim's Progress was used as a missionary tool in, uh, throughout the world, but certainly the English-speaking world, which in the 19th century was big, and much of Africa, for instance. Um, Milton historically matters much in... Um, he matters a lot in America. Um, the founding fathers of the United States read him intensely, the prose as well as the poetry. So when American students read Milton for the first time, they actually hear the Declaration of Independence to some degree, and that's terrifically important in America. Um, and uh, um, Milton does actually matter in parts of Europe where the, 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 the way you can see democracy in Milton, the French revolutionaries read him, in fact, and on into the 19th century. So he, is, he does have an international life, um, and even beyond the, um, beyond the confines of the English language. It's been translated into, into many languages. But no, it doesn't beat Shakespeare. And he certainly had um, an extraordinary life tonight, as, of course, is Shakespeare. It falls to me now to announce the results. Shakespeare still in the lead with 69%, but a respectable showing of 27% for Milton. Thank you all for coming. Thanks to Intelligence Squared. Thank you to our wonderful panelists. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.